Hi, I'm Dave Reinersman. Welcome to The Marvels of Science, a podcast about the science and tech of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. All your favorite heroes and villains from Gamora and Nebula to Drax and Rocket the Raccoon. Speaking of the Guardians of the Galaxy, today's topic is the galaxy itself, the Milky Way. Here with me to figure out where all those aliens come from in Guardians of the Galaxy is Tim Livengood, our science expert today. Tim is a planetary scientist, astrophysicist, and science educator who works at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center and the University of Maryland. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thank you. And our color commentator is Cassandra Scarpino, a friend of mine right here in D.C. who works in international education and completes, by the way, the third set of married couples I've had on as guests. Thanks for coming on the show, Cassandra. Thank you for inviting me. Fun exercise for the listeners. Try to figure out who the married couples are amongst the guests. I'm reasonably certain that I've edited out all the possible clues, but feel free to give it a guess. Before we get into the galaxy with all its stars and planets, Tim, you also describe yourself as a storyteller. Can you tell us more about that? Because it sounds really interesting. Yeah, this is uh, just something I've been doing more or less since I was a child and eventually started trying to do it as uh, you know something I was doing consciously. So I'm in the uh, Folklore Society of Greater Washington and I run a storytelling program, or rather I co-run with some uh, colleagues, something called The Grapevine, which obviously everyone should immediately search on and sign up to go to our next storytelling event. It's something I enjoy doing. I started off telling science anecdotes and I've uh, expanded to fictional stories, and now I sort of bounce back and forth. It's just, you know, you need an outlet. That's why I have a podcast. So let's start talking about some comic book movies. In Guardians of the Galaxy, we get our first look at the MCU's version of a heavily populated galaxy. We've got spaceships and aliens and laser blasters and so on. It's a little more Star Wars than Star Trek, probably, but you shouldn't hold that against it. In real life, we see far fewer aliens, which is sad. Maybe it's because they don't visit us as often as we'd like, but maybe it's because there just aren't that many out there. One day, by the way, I'd absolutely like to have a research from SETI, the uh, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, on the podcast. But let's back up a step. Bag it up. If there are all those different aliens, they probably had to come from a bunch of different planets. How do planets form? How do their stars form? How long do they stick around? And what in the world, no pun intended, is a rogue planet? So let's find out. But first, we're going to back up yet another step. Back it up. Back it up. Yep. Just back it up. No, no, no. Just back it up. Cassandra, how's your Greek? I know you speak a few languages, but is Greek one of them? Uh, well, the easy answer is no. Okay. So let's just say no. <laughs> is there a, a more complicated answer to? Uh, yes, but that will be for a different podcast. So let's just stick <laughs> okay. to no. There's a great podcast called Lingthusiasm, by the way. They are, as you'd expect, very enthusiastic about linguistics. So maybe you can be a guest on there. Then just take your best shot at this question, Cassandra. What is the etymology of the word galaxy from the Greek galaxias? Hmm. I wish this is something that I should have looked at before joining the, this episode, now that I think about I have no idea. That sounds like cheating. It is the Milky Way, more or less. Oh. The word galaxy comes from the fact that in the night sky, we can see the rest of the galaxy as a milky band of stars. 
the Milky Way, which I guess means saying the Milky Way galaxy is incorrect and redundant. Tim, let's get some basics out of the way. And by basics, I mean a question that about a thousand people have PhDs in. What's the basic structure of the galaxy? Well, this particular galaxy, the one we're in, is a uh, spiral galaxy. So it has great big long arms that reach out from a central core. And if you just look at a picture, you would fantasize that you're seeing something like a garden sprinkler with stuff spraying out. That fantasy would be dramatically wrong. <laughs> that it's it's really more like a flattened disc that gets thinner actually as it goes out, I guess. But the arms are not stuff spraying out. They're density waves in the structure of this rotating disc. Now, I have to admit, galactic stuff is not my bag. But if I recall correctly, the spirals actually kind of reach towards the direction that it's rotating into. And that, that would be at the most basic level of have I got it right or wrong. So it should be pretty easy to search on it, but hard to search on it while I'm actually talking about it. <laughs> so I urge people to check. Now, beyond that, that gives you sort of the big picture of the galaxy itself. But, you know, our galaxy is actually part of a galaxy group. There are what are called dwarf elliptical galaxies or irregular galaxies that are orbiting our galaxy. The two we've known about for quite a long time now are the Greater and Lesser Magellanic Clouds, named because the first European person who talked about them was Magellan. And so then the other people who wrote about them said those things that Magellan saw, hence Magellanic Clouds, even though the Southern Hemisphere people have known it forever. Those are both irregular galaxies that are orbiting the Milky Way galaxy, but there are other others that are harder to see with just your naked eye, including at least one that was discovered by infrared light getting through the dust at the center of the galaxy, our galaxy, that makes it hard to see visible light. So there's a dwarf elliptical galaxy more or less on the opposite side from us. And I believe that there are, there's another one or two, but you know, it's hard to keep track of these things. And then finally, there are these things called globular clusters that are, you know, what they sound like clusters of stars that orbit around the galaxy in a more or less spherical halo. So not everything is in this sort of flattened out configuration that you would see from the outside. And in fact, the only reason we have an idea of what we look like from the outside is because we can look at other galaxies, make observations about their structure, and then say, okay, so of those things we see out there, which ones resemble what we see here? And the most obvious one is here in the Northern Hemisphere in the summertime, when the night sky positions us so that you can look towards the center of the Milky Way galaxy, you can see this big strip of stars across the sky if you're in a dark site. And right away that tells you, oh, there's more stars along this relatively narrow plane than there are, you know, above and below. So we are not in one of those giant elliptical galaxies. We're in one of those spiral galaxies. I think another galaxy people are probably familiar with is the Andromeda galaxy, which shares some structural similarities to the Milky Way. The two galaxies are pretty similar. So we're fortunate that one that looks kind of like us is also the nearest big one. I believe the Milky Way is actually about twice as many stars, roughly speaking, as the Andromeda galaxy. The next piece of puzzle is for Cassandra again. Quiz time. Do you know what differentiates a planet from an exoplanet? Of course. No. I have no idea. <laughs> Should I? <laughs> but I'm sure Tim will tell us more about it. As, as you said before, too many things to track. Too many things. An exoplanet, exo meaning outside, is just a planet that's not in our solar system. So we've divided 
all the planets of the universe into the eight we have in our solar system, and every other planet in the universe is an exoplanet. There are many projects right now finding and cataloging exoplanets. We've confirmed more than 4,000 exoplanets exist. We put them in a category we call confirmed. There are thousands more candidate detections out there that we're not quite as sure of. If you're interested in diving a little deeper on exoplanets, I recommend another podcast called Exocast, produced by three exoplanet researchers. Really interesting and geared towards the general public. It's a monthly podcast where they talk about exoplanet research and where we are and how many we've found and what's a cool one and why is this one interesting and stuff like that. It's great. Tim, what's our understanding of how planets form? Why do stars even have planets? As far as planet formation is concerned, up until 1995, we thought we had it pretty well figured out. We are currently sort of heading back towards thinking we've more or less got it figured out. That's always with a lot of uncertainty. And the reason is that we had thought up until 1995 that our solar system would be pretty representative of what a solar system would look like. Rocky bits close to the star and gassy planets out far from the star. And then ice bits out beyond that. Makes perfect sense. There's also this assumption of normality, right? Like right. We assume if we have one sample, we assume it's an average one because most samples will be average, right? And, you know, and, and it seemed to make sense. And then the very first exoplanetary system that we confirmed, that was a Jupiter-sized planet orbiting its parent star in a four-day orbit. Wow. Right down there, you know, kissing the surface. So the general thinking is that you have a great big blob of gas and dust in space, and it self-gravitationally collapses. As things collapse, they will do the ice skater trick of pulling in their arms and beginning to whiz faster and faster. So as stuff squeezes in, conserving angular momentum, uh, as it squeezes down into something considerably smaller, will start uh, whirling around fairly rapidly, and you get down to the point where you get a central concentration that may or may not build up enough matter to form a star, and then you've got all of this stuff distributed around it. That collapses, and of course, how that collapses into you know essentially chunky bits is something that people spend careers on exploring. Now it looks like the giant planets may form more or less where we said, but then it looks like those suckers may go roaming around. If there are so many unusual cases, so many unusual possibilities with the 100 billion stars in the Milky Way, you're going to find a lot of unusual cases just because there's such a huge sample size. Yeah. Well, now I'm having to check. So there's about 300 billion stars 300 in our billion. galaxy. And if something happens 100th of 1%, you still get 30 million of them. <laughs> A follow-up question, just because I mentioned it in the intro, what's a rogue planet, speaking of things moving around? What can happen is that you often get a situation where two planets will start to interact with each other and orbit each other real fast, and then one of them gets flung out of the system. It's gained enough momentum that it's gone flying out of the system. And people said, well, I suppose this can happen. We may be able to find some of those. And there are now some examples that appear to be rogue planets. You described two planets that are orbiting around a star and one of them flies out and we don't really know what is going on. Maybe you guys know, but I don't. So would it be the opposite scenario happening that there is one planet around one star and then one of these planets that is just like traveling around coming into this one planet orbit? Like a planet that got captured by a solar system? Yes. Hmm. Yeah. You know, in, in principle, something like that could happen. So you're thinking like when worlds collide. We call this the convergence. <laughs> 
In principle, something like that could happen. In practice, go out on any clear night and you will notice that there is a whole lot more nothing out there <laughs> than there is something. And so the chances of actually coming close enough to a star is uh, is minimal. One, once a rogue, your chances are pretty good you're going to stay roguey. To quote Douglas Adams, space is big. Yes. Yeah, we also went through 2020, so, you know, anything is possible, <laughs> I guess, at this point. <laughs> Cassandra, this might seem a bit of a non sequitur, but what's your ideal weather? I'm asking this because I'm trying to see if I can ask him a question without actually asking him the question. <laughs> so, Cassandra, what's what's your ideal weather? I'd say 20 degrees Celsius, sunny, with maybe a few clouds. Okay. So that is sunny, but not too sunny. Sunny, but not too sunny. Like not too hot, but not too cold. Correct. Tim, am I being too obtuse in my hinting or too obvious? <laughs> well, first of all, for the Americans, 20 degrees <laughs> Celsius and 68 degrees Fahrenheit, I just whipped out my calculator and checked that. <laughs> Are you getting at, for instance, the fact that every planet in science fiction seems to have only one type of weather? Oh, yeah, there's that too. Yeah, it's a raining planet or it's an ice planet or it's a sunny planet. There's also, particularly in Star Trek, only one culture on per, per planet. We can't deal with two. Yeah. You guys, we have 45 minutes to tell the story. We don't have time for this. Uh, I was trying to get at the habitable zone and why we care about it. Ah, well, now we've modified the term to make it the thermally habitable zone in order Mm. to uh, avoid criticism. The thermally habitable zone is a pretty simple calculation. The calculation is if I have a little ball sitting here in space and I have energy falling on it from the star, I can estimate an equilibrium temperature. We've always understood that this is an intentional super simplification, but it puts you in the ballpark. And so the idea is that if I'm too close to a star, then that equilibrium would be you know, hotter than stable surface liquid water. All my water would vaporize. Uh, so that's the inside of the thermally habitable zone. And if I'm on the outside, then I get to where my average temperature is below the freezing point. Then I will have large sectors of the planet where water cannot exist as a uh, liquid. Somewhere in between them, I have a region in which water can exist as a liquid, which is a thing that we need for every living thing we know of on Earth, because that's the only life we currently know about. Life that we can even sort of understand is going to need water. That is, if you're going to look for something where you at least have some idea what you're looking for. But it turns out that there's a lot of complications, and you know the universe is still more inventive than we often give it credit for. It goes right into another question I had for Cassandra. You work in international development, a field that I think tries to be careful about bias. Tries to, anyway. What bias do you see in our interest in the habitable zone? If you had to apply some work skills that you thought you weren't going to need to use on a Sunday, what bias do you see there? Well, how much time do we have today? <laughs> I think it's only for like self-interest, of course. So we're trying to look into other places that might have a climate or an environment that allows for us to take advantage of new space. That's an interesting one that we're looking sort of self-interestedly. I hadn't thought about that because I guess there are two, there's probably a thousand, but there are two reasons we look for life somewhere out in the universe. One, we're interested to find out if it's there or not. We want to know if we're alone or not. But also we know that if we stay on this planet, we will all die. Not us specifically, but humanity in general, every other animal and plant, eventually, given enough time, we're out. So if we have, you know, a backup planet, that'd be great. 
getting there is a whole leave that problem for the engineers what we need to figure out is if it's possible to go somewhere yeah but also um i mean i think it's pretentious to think that we are the only living things mm. i think i'm not a scientist of course but i'm sure someone can convince me otherwise but i think it's very pretentious but the, the other part is that i was thinking about that as i was re-watching the moving question that every time we think about other living things we imagine them being very like us I mean, they might look slightly different, but they're basically humanoid. But what if other living things are in conditions that are still not livable for us? So um, maybe the temperature is too high or uh, there are other conditions that wouldn't permit life to the human beings. Yeah, I think it's a problem we see with basically any live action science fiction in space is that a human actor in makeup is much cheaper than a CGI character running around. <laughs> so you're going to get people like, you know, uh, Gamora, who looks human but green, or Nebula, who is apparently a robot person, but basically human but bluish and purple. And then you can get things like Groot and Rocket, who are, you know, fully CG characters. But, but still. Yeah, like, but still, they look very human. They look like it's a furry human that's small or a tree like human that's tall and that's basically the form we're going with but there are some animated sci-fi movies that go very far afield from the basic shape of a person i guess the extreme version of this is like the star trek problem when they had a budget of like 50 bucks to make their aliens every week so they were like you put this piece of plastic in your face you're an alien there you go and then they had one episode where there was a living rock basically it was a silicon based organism they could do that once because they could afford to make the alien once i think what tim you, you pointed out where the basics are if we're going to look for life we've got to start with the easy stuff first the stuff we can do now technologically and the stuff we could recognize uh -huh. as being alive even and not confuse it for a rock so it totally makes sense i don't think it's a, a bias that we need to like examine ourselves for well in fact this is an area where you can have passionate discussions on uh, on the philosophy of how to do this and since those passionate discussions can translate into billions of dollars spent or not spent in certain directions the passion can get pretty high mm. My personal suggestion, my personal argument is that what we should be doing is we should be looking for everything that is not Earth, because we kind of understand what a not Earth mm. looks like. And if we find something that fails to look like the planets we know, then we have an argument for why we should go deeper into the problem. But certainly there's other people who are taking the point of view that we can't afford to look at everything. We need to have an mm. idea of what would be the indicators that would tell us this is Earth-like in some fundamental sense. And that's where we should be spending our effort. I can't say that they're wrong with that. It's just that my personal feeling is that I think we'll be more scientifically productive if we narrow down on the ones that deserve greater scrutiny. And Tim, do you think that this different perspective on what we should be looking for and what we should avoid, do they match with different interests from different countries? I'm just thinking about the politics that might be around that, if there are any. I don't know if there is a, uh, a political issue right now that affects viewpoints on that, but there's no doubt that the field is heavily dominated by people holding U.S. and EU citizenship. There's a lot of the world that we don't hear from as much that certainly is likely to have an opinion on the subject, just has not been involved in that yet for reasons that are understandable and some of them not forgivable. So maybe, Dave, that's the answer to your bias question that you had before. Yeah. Cassandra, what do you know about the origins of life on Earth? If you're not up on the uh, current theories or anything, feel free to get creative. What's the Scarpino origin theory of life on Earth? <laughs> it's funny that you asked me that. We're talking about the bang and then everything that happened on Earth and everything that comes from water. 
that's all that I know, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, yeah, there are some steps in there, but there's def- there was definitely a big bang. Earth was there after a little while and then there was some water and then there was some life tim i'm not sure this is within your wheelhouse exactly but what's the maybe big picture on our current understanding of how life initially formed on earth or how long it took i guess is a big question you know that is a thing that uh, that people have been working on the one version suggests that you need time for delicate molecules to flit together then the other version though is life thrives on challenge <laughs> the individual organism may not thrive but evolution works by processes that are constantly trying to kill you. And the things that survive are the things that go on to be the parent of the next generation. Then we have the panspermia concept that maybe it's unusual for a planet to initiate life on its own, but perhaps something gets splashed into it. More likely is sort of the general thinking that life probably starts anywhere it can get a foothold. It's likely that it happens often. You know, this is hand-waving. We don't have a lot of evidence on this. And one of the tricky things is there's what we believe and what's really a scientific argument. My belief is that I just don't believe that we're all that unusual, that maybe 1%, maybe 10% of all the stars you see in the sky may have a planet with some life on the planet or may at one time have had it. But that's belief. That is without evidence or with the tiny bit of evidence that we now know the planets are fairly common. Then there's the scientific argument. Science works by you have to assume what we call a null hypothesis. You assume the argument that requires the least stretch in your assumptions. And then if you can find even one case that shows that that argument is wrong, then I need to go back and re-examine the assumptions. So the simplest null hypothesis is we're it. We're the only living planet planet there is. And so if we can find even one case that shows that that's wrong, then now we know the null hypothesis is falsified. But which of the assumptions that go into that null hypothesis is the one that is most wrong? So is it the assumption that we have to have liquid water or the assumption that it has to be carbon-based or the assumption that it's going to breathe oxygen? You know, it's very hard not to assume. You have to assume something. Otherwise, you're just flailing. (laughs) I'm pretty used to flailing. If we put all this together, we're looking at a galaxy with billions of planets. Some of them are potentially habitable by humans or something else we might recognize is alive. But so far, no evidence of life off of Earth. Arthur C. Clarke said, very famous quote, two possibilities exist. Either we are alone in the universe or we are not. Both are equally terrifying. Cassandra, which of those do you think is scarier? Being alone in the universe or not alone in the universe? Being alone, definitely. Yeah? Yeah. It's just... I don't know. It's terrifying. Just thinking about the universe and the fact that I don't fully understand it. And then to add the fact that we are completely alone? No. Seems seems terrifying. There's a part of that that really clicks with me. I, I think about like the responsibility. Like if we're the only intelligent life in the galaxy or even the whoa, whole universe. Whoa. Intelligent. That has to be <laughs> <laughs> confirmed. We're not sure about that. Even what we are. There's this like pressure to not let ourselves die out. 
there's already some pressure, but some added pressure. What are you, some saint all of a sudden? What has the galaxy ever done for you? Why would you want to save it? Because I'm one of the idiots who lives in it! And also to try to understand as much of the universe as possible. If you had to put money on it, Cassandra, I guess we've established you hope there's other life in the universe. Do you think there is? I think I said before that I think it's pretentious to think that we're all alone. Yeah. And maybe it is. I think that because we established that I'm terrified by that thought. <laughs> I don't think we will, at least in my lifetime, I don't think, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe Kim can correct me here. I don't know if we have any technology um, that can help us uh, confirm whether or not we're alone. But no, I, I don't think, I don't think we are. It has to be established whether the other living things are things that we can interact with that i don't know but i don't think that we are the only living things no tim what's your take i really like evidence i would really like to have evidence it's not that i rule out the possibility of other life unless i get evidence of it it's that what i believe is what comforts me is the belief that we are not alone but i don't have actual evidence to support that comforting belief yet certainly we're not going to actually come face to face with any such organism in our lifetimes Hmm. Uh, i know that people who work on SETI believe that we are more or less going to have an answer within the next 50 years because our ability to listen for radio signals from other stars is increasing all the time. The quality of our sampling is still pretty low compared to what would be necessary to say is statistically unlikely that any star has a radio producing life. We may get there in the next 50 years. And if in that time we still don't detect a radio signal, then at some point you got to say, well, either radio is not so darn universal as we thought, or there's just nobody there. Well, they're avoiding us. Well, yeah, there's a whole concept (laughs) called the Fermi paradox that goes back to Enrico Fermi with the where is everybody question. (laughs) Why have we not seen them? And certainly, you know, one of the big possibilities is that we are under quarantine. (laughs) Oh, that word. Oh, that word. Yeah, that either they are protecting us by not coming in contact with us, or they are protecting themselves by not coming in contact with us. More likely. (laughs) Follow-up alien question. Cassandra, do you think the possibility exists, and Tim hinted at this already, that the galaxy is full of an MCU-level diversity and proliferation of intelligent spacefaring species if we get up there and we turn out and we break through the quarantine do you think we're finding a couple of hundred different aliens and spaceships and so on well dave after these 50 minutes i don't know anymore i'm so <laughs> confused <laughs> it would be nice but maybe not i don't know anymore i would say no i i also think it's pretty unlikely but hold that hope next up in the show we have a segment called hmm technically cassandra and i are gonna keep quiet for two or three minutes as tim gives us some extra nuance or details on anything related even tangentially to the topic tim you have the floor Although I'm not sure I haven't already dominated things. One thing that certainly that uh, people have cottoned onto, you know, way back in the elder days, we had what we were referring to as exobiology. And the term fell into disfavor. Uh, The reason being, first of all, obviously, we had no examples of biology that was not terrestrial biology uh, and no prospects of changing that situation. As we moved into the late 90s, the term that became popular 
was astrobiology, using the tools of astronomy to try to investigate biological questions on the theory that we're not going to get a chance to like poke at the DNA or equivalent of alien organisms, but we can start thinking about what is observable if you look at it from the outside. I mean, the most important thing that you can deduce about Earth that we can tell is that we have polluted the heck out of it. And I don't mean uh, hydrocarbons and fossil fuels and stuff like that. Uh, I mean oxygen. Earth's natural atmosphere, the primordial atmosphere, would have had no molecular oxygen in it. And it was the rise of plant life that filled the atmosphere with oxygen, a molecule that has no right to be there. And so that's the kind of thing we look for when we're looking at other planets. We're looking for, are there molecules that have no right to be there? Like like oxygen or methane, but methane is extremely common in the universe, except in a place like Earth where there's oxygen that would oxidize it. So that's the kind of weird stuff we look for. You more or less expect things to be boring, not because you're a boring person, but because you want the thing that shows that boring is the wrong assumption. And then you start knowing what it is you need to look for next. One of the big areas is people who are working in agnostic life detection, trying to come up with what are the methods you could use to detect life when you don't know what life looks like. Because one of the things we've realized just from weird life on Earth is we don't even know what is life because it's a hard problem. We're now trying the even harder problem. What is life if it's life as I don't know it? That sounds like an impossible problem. And what a bold thing to even start to study. I'm impressed by that effort. Okay, Cassandra, close us out. What are your final galactic thoughts? It's really amazing the progress that has been made in the past decades and everything that we know and we continue to learn. And Mom was amazed about the fact that I'm still very confused. Uh, maybe even more confused than I was when I came into this episode, but that's a good thing. Having more questions, having questions is always good. Uh, and I'm very glad that there are people like Tim that continue to learn and investigate and they can share with us, with everyone else that has difficulties or interest in learning more about the universe and what is around us or maybe what is not around us. Nice. That's good. I like the little symmetry at the end. This guy's a good conclusion. You've written some papers. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be clear as always that I love these movies. Scientific accuracy is not a necessary component for good storytelling. In fact, sometimes it gets in the way. I want to thank my guests, Cassandra Scarpino and Tim Livingood, for being on the podcast. Thanks for listening, and cross your fingers that there's an episode 16. That's all for this episode. Thanks once again to my guests, Tim Livingood and Cassandra Scarpino. Their willingness to explore these hypotheticals with care and thoughtfulness means a lot to me. And a special shout out to Tim's wife for keeping him supplied with coffee during the recording. We appreciate it. I'm going to ask you a favor during the credits now. Share this podcast with one friend you think would like it. And if you want to go a step further, I'll ask what every small podcast asks to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. If you want to go nuts, support the podcast directly at patreon.com slash marvelsofscience. MCU audio clips were taken from Ant-Man, Thor the Dark World, Guardians of the Galaxy, and uh, the musical 1776, and all used entirely without permission. The music is a song called On Tiptoe from Purple Planet Music. That song and more royalty-free music can be found at purple-planet.com. Check out more info about each episode and its guests, including upcoming episodes at davereinersman.com slash marvelsofscience. And now find me on Twitter at marvelsoscience. Thanks for listening.